Today's the last sermon in the book of Acts. I don't know if that brings a sigh of, oh man, I wanted more, or a sigh of relief, and thank God. <laughs> Some of the older Puritans would take years and years and years to get through particular passages. Um, I was reading recently um, about one minister who was a Puritan in Great Britain. He spent his entire ministry career of 40 years preaching through the book of Job. He never got out of the book of Job. For 40 years, he preached through the book of Job. And um, <laughs> clearly that was uh, not, not the intention that I have, but uh, we take a couple of years to get through these big books, particularly Acts. Um, and here we are. So we're going to begin in chapter 27. We're going to cover two chapters today. Uh, we're sort of going to read through a lot of this fast because it's a lot of detail. It's a lot of detail. And one of the things that we notice about Acts is Acts is a journey. And uh, as a journey, uh, one thing we realize is that eventually there is an end to that journey. Today is the end. One third of the book of Acts, however, is dedicated to this final lap of the journey, Paul's trials. We've been here since chapter 22. And um, we, take, we have taken Paul from Jerusalem he will wind up in Rome today. And it was uh, a very detailed account, five trials, three testimonies, um, a great amount of, of specificity uh, as to who was trying him and names and historical um, details were given. And this was very particular as Luke was not only uh, here to give us an account of the church, but a historical account with very accurate detail so that it verifies and validates the work of Luke. In fact, many historical uh, um, scholars have recognized the book of Acts as one of the most accurate historical accounts from the first century that exist. In fact, chapter 27 alone gives more details about um, seafaring and, 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 and sailing ships and the... And, and the the appropriate means and, and the how people sailed ships at that time. That was all here in chapter 27. This, this, was, this was recorded in vivid detail, and it was for not only the purpose of God's word, but it provides us an accurate picture of how people um, were involved in, in, in the seafaring business at that time. All right, so where is the destination? Rome. The destination is Rome. And uh, the Lord told Paul from the day he was converted that he would stand before magistrates. He was told in chapter 22 when the Lord appeared to him in prison that he would go to Rome. God had a plan for him to get to Rome, but he never told him how he would get to Rome. And he never told him it would be smooth sailing. And literally, it would not be smooth sailing. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome uh, existed exactly where it exists today, and it was not only the the capital of the Roman Empire, it was the center of the world in the first century. You know, when we think of global centers today, we think of maybe New York City, or we think of London, we think of or Hong Kong, we think of or certain cities as as global uh, centers. Uh, being American, New York would would certainly fit that description. Now, the Roman Empire ruled almost the whole world, the known world in Europe at this time. It ruled um, most of the Mediterranean world and the uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean. It ruled all of North Africa, and it ruled all of Europe. And its power extended into Spain and even into what we know today as Great Britain. And at this point, Rome was in the zenith of its power. In fact, according to scholars... Uh, Rome, whose founding was called the greatest and grandest political achievement ever accomplished. Rome was known for many things. It was known for their Pax Romana, for spreading peace, peace through conquest uh, through the, uh, the Western world at that time. But Rome was known also for their relative humane treatment uh, of their subjects, um, and, and, you know, when we look at it today, we say, well, they were brutal, they were cruel, they were harsh. Well, yeah, of course, according to, if you compare it with 21st century 
America, but if you compare it with other ancient empires, Rome was relatively humane. Um, they treated um, their subjects um, with a sense of tolerance. They were allowed religious freedom, and at the same time, they were expected to integrate into Roman culture and life. But Rome was known for protecting and preserving the Greek culture of Hellenism and uh, the language that dominated the world. Rome was also known for instituting a legal system that was ahead of its time. It is the basis of Western-style governments today. If you've never read Plato's Republic when you were in college, you should read it. It's the basis of our government here in the United States and most Western countries. Rome was also called the Eternal City. It was called the Eternal City. Its structures and buildings were spectacular. I had the pleasure of visiting Rome in 2003, and uh, when I toured the city, I was just enamored and amazed at the structures. The Roman Colosseum, spectacular. Um, you know, the Pantheon, spectacular. These were just amazing buildings. And you wonder, how were they able to construct such marvels, such architectural marvels in the first century when they didn't have cranes or bulldozers or the technology that we have today? Now, those buildings, of course, are dilapidated now, and it's still spectacular. But if you understand what Rome looked like back then, these buildings were all covered in marble and gold. I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie Gladiator, but in the beginning of the movie Gladiator, when the sun rises over Rome, the whole city would glimmer and shine. That's an accurate uh, representation of what Rome looked like at that period of time. And that's why it was called the Eternal City. It literally shined and shimmered like gold. You felt like you were in heaven on earth. And so people from all around the world wanted to go to Rome. It was a cosmopolitan, and as the old saying goes, all roads lead to Rome was not a, a, an understatement. Literally, all roads were designed and built by the empire to center in on the city of Rome. And you can get there from just about anywhere in the empire. The, the aqueducts that were built, the technology to transport water was incredible. But this is not why Paul was going to Rome. Paul was going to Rome to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was going to Rome as a prisoner. But he was going to Rome confident that he was in the will of God and trusting that he was going to accomplish what the Lord wanted him to. Eventually, he would stand trial before Emperor Nero, who was not yet the Nero that we know of of history, the crazy uh, uh, emperor who, um, who had burned the city, blamed the Christians, and, um, and who committed suicide in his uh, tyranny. No, Nero was in the early stages of his uh, rule, and um, according to church history, he exonerated Paul in his first trial. And although that's not described here in the book of Acts, that is what happens. So I'm going to break this up into three parts. The first part is Paul's journey at sea then his shipwreck at Malta, and then finally to Rome. And then we end this journey. So let's look first at surviving the storm at sea. Chapter 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adraminium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius uh, treated Paul kindly and uh, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Mera at Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off uh, Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. And coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. 
And since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but our lives. And the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing some southwest, both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity to come under the ministry of the Word. Please guide us. Please direct us. Illuminate the Word to us. Help us to understand what you're showing us here. And Father, keep us humble. Give us humble hearts. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would lean heavy on you today. And as these difficult passages are in front of us of all these great details, I pray that we're able to squeeze out uh, the essence and meaning of what you would want us to know. Help me, O Lord Jesus, as your servant. Give me the mind and the heart and the anointing of my lips that I may boldly proclaim what you would have me to say. In Christ's name, amen. I am not going to go through the list of all these cities and all these ports and all these details to tell you exactly what's going on. Unless you lived in the first century, it would make no, absolutely no sense. But these details are there for a reason. They're there for accuracy. They're there to demonstrate that Luke was with Paul. We go back to chapter 27, um, and it says it was decided that we should sail for Italy. Luke is reminding us here, he is there, he is present, which is why there is such accuracy here and why there are so many details. Luke is part of this journey. He's on the ship. He is determined to go with Paul the distance. Not everybody's with Paul at this point. And there's no mention of Timothy. The only person that's mentioned is Aristarchus, who is one of Paul's companion on his entourage. Everyone else has gone their separate ways. This is the final stretch. Paul is heading on a ship to Italy from Caesarea. We're talking about 3,500 miles. That's approximately the distance it takes to get from here to San Francisco. This is all on sea. It's a treacherous journey. And yet, the destination is all the worth it. Now, Paul is going as a prisoner. We're introduced to... This man, this man called Julius, not probably named after Julius Caesar. He was of the Augustan cohort. This was a high-ranking uh, outfit. He was a centurion, uh, which means he led 100 soldiers. And on this ship of 265 men, Paul and Luke were on this boat, on this vessel, heading towards Italy. One thing we see is that two ships were part of this journey. Um, in verse 2, we're told they embarked on a ship of Adraminium, which was about to set sail for the ports along the coast of Asia. Now, it's important also to see the, the method of travel here. It is autumn. The, the waters are starting to get rough, and they're not traveling into open sea. The ship wasn't even designed for the open sea, but rather they're hugging the coast of the sea. In verse 6, we're told the centurion found a ship when they were in Myra in Lycia from Alexandria, and they used that ship to sail to Italy. This was a merchant ship. And again, like the previous one, they hugged the coast along the Mediterranean, and they were coasting with difficulty, with difficulty. The waters are getting treacherous at this time. With this said, Paul speaks up. Paul warns. He speaks to the centurion who he's developed a good relationship. He and Julius have become friends at some point because we're told that Julius shows kindness to Paul, that when they were in port, uh, he allowed Paul's friends uh, to tend to him and to minister to him. Now, this was unusual, um, but he was allowed, uh, he was treated kindly to go to leave, verse 3, and to be cared for by his friends. So there was an understanding, although he was a prisoner, he was given a certain sense of liberty. So with this liberty, 
Paul now speaks to the centurion and gives him advice. And um, he says, sirs, if I perceive, and this is verse 10, that the voyage will be with great injury, much loss, and not only the cargo and the ship, but our lives. Now, what are we seeing here? Is this a prophetic utterance? Is God giving Paul insight into what will happen in the future? That may be the case. Or maybe is that Paul just has common sense. The captain is a merchant. He has cargo that needs to get somewhere, and he just wants to make his money and could care less about the danger of the journey? Or could it be that Paul is using the sense saying, listen, why don't we just winter here for a season and we can get back on the sea? Whatever the case is, the centurion does not listen to Paul, although they have a good relationship, instead listens to the pilot, listens to the captain of the ship. And uh, we're told in verse 12 the reason. The harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, and the majority decide to put out to sea. And so the idea was if they can get to the next port of Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, then maybe they could spend the winter there. Well, one thing we should recognize is all we don't know if Paul was prophetic in his utterance, but we do know that Paul had authority as an apostle. It doesn't mean he was right about everything, but it does mean that he was the man of God on that ship. And it does mean that if God was going to spare the people of that ship, it wouldn't be because of the captain or the centurion or any of the other prisoners on the ship. It would be because of Paul. Similar situation happened in the book of Jonah. We know of Jonah the prophet, right? And Jonah the prophet was on a boat and there was a great great storm at the sea. So much so. Why? Because God had to deal with his servant, Jonah. And the people knew that once they threw Jonah overboard, the sea calmed down. In this case, God's preserving grace is contingent upon Paul's ministry and his need to get to Rome, because God had promised him that he would get to Rome. And so what had happened there? Eventually, what Paul said had come to pass. Now when the south winds blew greatly, supposing, verse 13, that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, They used supports to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run aground of the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This was it. Captain and commander brought them into this situation. The sea is in in uproar. There is a storm that they've never seen before, a nor'easter that has lasted for days. They have not seen daylight. They have not seen stars. They are in despair. They've thrown the cargo off. They've done everything they could do imaginably, humanly speaking, And yet, all hope was lost. They were going to die. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a storm in your life where it just seems like all hell has broken loose? Where it just seems like, like every demon in hell has come at you from every angle? Where you haven't seen day or you haven't seen stars for days, metaphorically speaking? I've been in those storms, and it could be quite troubling, can it? You could get into despair. You can get discouraged. You can lose hope. Certainly these men, and Luke says himself, right? All of us, all of us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But God had a plan. Paul was getting to Rome and no storm of the sea, no act of Satan, 
No power of nature was going to prevent God from getting his servant to Rome. It says in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, they were probably preserving it at this point, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I mean, I hate to be the guy that told you so, is essentially what Paul is saying. Um, but they should have listened to him. He's absolutely right. Yeah, I want to take a, take a point, step back. Claudia and I were recently visiting with the Brants down in um, New Jersey, and we went to their home and had a good time uh, ministering and just fellowship together. And one of the topics of our conversation that came up, and it turned into a joke, was... Um, was as how very few people take advice or listen to you. I've, I've thought of all the years of ministry that I've been serving in ministry, and Todd was talking about it, and we both agreed. Like, you could talk to your blue in the face and try to give people good advice and guide them and counsel them, and 99% of the time, people don't care and they don't listen. And so we made this joke. We were going to come up with a, we were come up with a blog, not a blog, a uh, podcast called Nobody Cares and Nobody Listens. Joke has been enduring for some time. Claudia enjoys it. Um, but that's the truth, isn't it? I stop giving advice to people. I try to give advice to people. I try to give people options. But I have found that most of the time, people do not, we don't like taking advice. We like to do things on our own. We think we know better. Right? Teenagers, typical example. But as you get older, it seems like nothing much changes. I know that uh, one of the things I've tried to do in my life is whenever I have big decisions, I consult with as many people as possible, at least people that I trust, people that I think are wise, people that have made good decisions ahead of me, people that I look up to and say, hopefully I can you know, get some good counsel. You know, and, and the consensus may point me in the right direction. But I think to just bulldoze ahead without listening to people um, is, a, is an errand of folly. So one thing you can see, had they listened to Paul, none of this would have happened. But it did, because they didn't listen. Nobody cares. Nobody listens. So we move on. He says, he says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So how does Paul get this information? And this leads me to believe that his earlier uh, proclamation was prophetic. He says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship and he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Isn't that the, that's the anchor of Paul's faith. You see, we may go through the storms of life. We may go through difficulty. We may be in a storm of life because we didn't take advice from someone and went bulldozed ahead on our own and got ourselves in a big mess. But here is the blessing and here is the confidence that we can have. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. They can have, Paul can have confidence, says, listen, an angel met with me and, and told me it's all going to be right and everyone's going to survive. Why? Because I am in the will of God. And I know God has a plan for me, and that plan is to get to Rome, and nothing is going to stop that. And see, here's the key. When you know you're in the will of God, you can face any storm in life because you know you're on the right side. You know you're in the will of God. And when you're in the will of God, you have like an umbrella of protection around you. God is going to keep you safe. He's going to preserve you. You're, you're in a bubble. You're in a divine bubble. And you might have a little bumps along the road, but he's going to get you to where you need to be. The problem is when we are outside of God's will. When we are outside of God's will, we cannot presume that God's umbrella of protection is upon us. Because once we go outside that umbrella, at that point then, we have to recognize that we are in dangerous territory. You see, in the ancient world, the sea represented a place of chaos and fear. In ancient times, they didn't have satellites that can give them pictures of the planet Earth, and they didn't have a map of how big the oceans were, and they didn't have submarines that could go to the depths and measure the sea. 
No, the, the, the knowledge was limited. And especially in, among the pagans and the superstitious, the sea was a scary place. It was turmoil. It was chaos. It was dark. It was a place to go and die. But God demonstrates his sovereignty over the sea. He did it with Jonah. And he did it also with the apostles in the Sea of Galilee. They were also hit a tempestuous storm. And there they were, and terrified, and there was Jesus walking on the water. Be still, it is I. Oh, if we could just remember that in the storm of life. Be still, it is I. I am with you, says the Lord. Fear not, you of little faith. Christ will get us to the other side. But sometimes the, <laughs> the journey could be quite bumpy. I don't sail much. I don't go on ships much. I went on a boat many years ago in deep sea fishing, which was quite an experience in and of itself. But I go on airplanes a lot. And airplanes could be quite bumpy too. But God has always caught me <laughs> safe on ground. Nothing like a turbulent flight. Oh man, that'll shake you up. So they sit down and they have a meal. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land and they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little further on. They took a sounding again, found 15 fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors in the stern and prayed for day to come. People are praying now. Although the details are not given, but the fact that they're praying leads me to believe that Paul has preached the gospel to many on the boat, that people are coming to faith on the boat. God is using Paul as an ambassador for Christ on this ship, and people are coming to faith. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under a pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul used, said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, notice they're listening to Paul now. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all he broke it and began to eat. And they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. I, I see at this point that a great number of the people in this boat were saved. I see here that, that Paul's words were now taken from listening to their being encouraged by Paul. And just like Jonah, who brought harm to all the people in the boat, through Paul, God is bringing blessings to all on the boat. Verse 39 says, When it was day, they did not recognize the land, and they noticed a bay with a beach in which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, at the same time loosened the ropes and tied the rudders and hoisted the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, stuck, and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the turf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest anyone should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What is the meaning of everything we just read? <laughs> well, it could be a little difficult to understand because as you're reading it, these details make you wonder, is there something deeper here? Now, now in church history, there are some who've used the allegorical method to interpret scripture. And I see a story like this and say, hmm, it's hard to really see what the meaning and significance here, so we're going to read something into it. And they start to symbolize everything. 
If this sounds familiar, this is typical of what Harold Camping does, um, or did, I should say, the late Harold Camping. August von Ryan was an American preacher uh, from the early 20th century. He was born in Norway, came to America, and um, became a, um, a well-recognized minister. And he came up with an allegory. And so this was his allegory. He said, the ship is the visible church whose history has been a voyage from its pristine perfection in Jerusalem at Pentecost through much contrary wind and violent storms, persecution and false doctrine to its moral and spiritual wreck in Rome that is the Roman Catholic Church. Those on board, the 276, are a mixed multitude. Some resemble the centurion who believed the captain and owner of the ship, church leaders, more than those who were with who, who things which were spoken by Paul, while others, even in the midst of darkness, storm, and fear, listened to Paul's teachings and were saved. These also throw the wheat into the sea, casting their bread upon the waters, and that is, they broadcast the gospel seed far and wide. This crew struggled to undergird the ship, meaning, and this means that well-meaning people who try to hold the church together by union uh, uh, schemes, but they cannot prevent it from being wrecked, from being broken into a thousand fragments. Now this may sound very spiritual, very tantalizing, but this is not what was intended by the original author. We have to be careful because when you use the allegorical method, it is subjective. It is subjective to the person who's interpreting it. That's their interpretation. And the Bible tells us that, that the scripture uh, does not subject to private interpretation, but the Holy Spirit gives us interpretation and gives us understanding. And I, the big picture here is simply this, that God is providential, providentially uh, securing his, his person, his man, Paul, to get to Rome. And he is the captain of the waves and the seas. And he is in sovereign control of everything taking place. And that you can have confidence that no matter what happens, God is in control. William Cowper reminds us of this in his classic hymn, when he says, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. You know, we sing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. The author of that hymn lost his whole family in a shipwreck. And it was only after it all happened, he wept and he agonized and he mourned, he penned that beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You see, we could sing that because no matter what happens in life, we know that God's providence is for our good. It tells us in Scripture that God is working all things together for the good of those who love and called according to his purpose. We have confidence in that, that he uh, takes pleasure he takes pleasure, God, in orchestrating the events of our lives for our good. So what should that give us? It should give us a sense of confidence. If you're in a storm right now, that's okay. Take, take a sense of rest. Rest your soul in the caring providence of God. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what each of you... We all have storms of life. I have storms of life. But rest in the fact that God is sovereign. Look at the storms of the world around us. I have a lot of people asking me, you think we're headed towards World War III? I don't know. We may. We may not. I don't know. Someone asked me, you think Russia will use a nuclear weapon? I don't know. But if it did all happen, if we went through World War III, our ancestors went through World War I and World War II, and it was hell on earth. We got through it. If we go through World War III, I'm confident of this, and nothing's going to happen. Not one hair of my head or your head, and I'm getting less of them, will not fall to the ground apart from God's purpose. Not one hair. And if you could be confident of that, then I could tell you, you can get through the most turbulent flights. Chapter 28. They're shipwrecked now in island of Malta. And we were brought safely through. Amen. We were brought safely through. 
We then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us. And Malta is a little island off the coast of Greece. I actually knew a family uh, from back in North Shore Baptist Church who were from the island of Malta, and very nice families. You don't meet too many people that are Maltese. It's a very small island. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So get this, you're jumping into the sea, making a swim for it in the freezing cold. It's winter, the water's cold, it's raining, everything. You could die. This was, not one person was lost. They all survived. Someone could have easily drowned or froze to death. God's providential care saved every one of them. And so they kindled a fire and welcomed us, and it had begun to rain, and it was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the scene. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down as dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Well, the superstitions of a pagan were rife in those days, and people are still superstitious to this day. Um, but clearly here we see an allusion to one of the promises that Christ made to the apostles in Mark 16. In Mark 16, 15, he said, Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, and they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. This was a sign of Paul's apostolic authority. Most likely, if you are bitten by a viper, the poison will run through your veins, get to your heart, and kill you. I was never bitten by a serpent. I hope never to be bitten by a serpent. But in those days, it was common. And so they thought, aha, justice has found Paul. Quickly, they changed their mind when they saw he survived and this is also, I, and I wouldn't say so much allegorical, but metaphorical, to remind us that the serpent's bite can affect you if you're a Christian. When I talk about the serpent, I talk about Satan. Satan's bitten into the human race, and he's bitten into us with the venom of sin and death and sorrow. But if you have Christ in your life and you're born again, then the serpent's bite will not kill you may cause a little pain and inflict a little harm, but you will survive because greater is he that is in you than is he is of the world. Ultimately here, Paul is now well received and although again the details are not given on this, it is reasonable to assume that Paul has preached the gospel to everyone in Malta. Let's see what happens. Now, in the neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. Now, I mean, you think of this, Publius, Julius, you know, you can, um, you can make a song up about this, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So once again, the sign of an apostle is demonstrated, not only in the uh, withstanding the poisonous bite of the viper, but in the healing of the sick. The great reception and the blessing of goods on the boat can only prove to me that these people heard the gospel, that Paul, who would think that Paul would be there and not preach the gospel? At this point, it goes without saying. Paul's there. He's going to preach the gospel. The reception here is evidence that they believed and came to faith in Christ. I want you to see the bigger picture here. Along this horrific journey, God is bringing to Paul to places he would have never went on his own. You think Paul would have sat there on his fourth missionary journey plotting out Malta? 
And yet God had his elect on Malta that needed to hear the gospel, needed to be saved, and wanted some of the first people to hear of Christ. God had his own way of getting things done. And so they're on their way. They're on their way. And we get to verse 11, and Paul arrives at Rome. Destination achieved. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, the ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putiloli. And there we found brothers who were invited to stay with them seven days. And we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself and with the soldier who guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers come here as reported spoken any evil about you but we desire to hear from you what your views are for which regard to the sect we know that everyone everywhere it is spoken against when they had pointed a day for him they came to him at his lodging in great numbers and from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of god trying to convince them both about jesus and the law of moses from the prophets and some were convinced by what he said but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, that they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years in his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two things to bring out here to draw out as we conclude this series and conclude this sermon. Number one. Paul is received by the brothers once he gets to Italy. He's received when he arrives to the coast of Italy. He comes to Rome. He is allowed to live under house arrest at his own expense. So at this point, he's living in a private dwelling. Although he's under 24-7 surveillance of a Roman praetorian guard, Paul is active in ministry. And he begins just like he would anywhere else, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So once he's welcomed by all, and, and just to show you, there's already an established Christian presence in Rome. Paul hadn't gotten there, but Paul has preached all over the empire and all roads do lead back to Rome. The message had gotten there. People were saved. There was already a church. There was already an established community of Christians. And they welcomed him. But he had to speak to the Jews. He laid his case out to them. And once again, as we saw, they hardened their hearts. With this concluding chapter in an Acts, Luke records for us why they hardened their hearts, because it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 6. That quotation from Isaiah chapter 6 is a reminder. There comes a point when people receive God's revelation and then continue to rebel, and they continue to rebel, that it becomes too late. There comes a point where you cannot hear no more. 
you cannot understand, you cannot repent. God hardens your heart. You've crossed the line. You're at the point of no return. That's when judgment comes upon a nation. That's why Paul quoted that. He quoted it because judgment had come upon Israel. A temporary hardening, as he calls it, in Romans chapter 11. But I believe that same hardening is taking place in our day. When you look out at the landscape of the Western nations that have been stewards of the gospel for hundreds of years now, the Western nations have plunged into an abysmal state of decadency, immorality, and ungodliness. We who have received such great revelation have flaunted it and substituted it for a form of human secularism which displaces God with man as the center. Our values, our morals, our beliefs are all about what makes man great and how we can continue to accelerate the glorification of humanity. There comes a point where God says, seeing you will not see and hearing you will not hear. It's too late. And I believe we're seeing that in our day. I believe we're seeing it in our churches today. People go to church every Sunday. They get dressed up and they hear, but they don't hear. And they see, but they don't see. And they know what the right thing to do is, but they will not do it. Their hearts are hardened. Israel was, came under God's judgment. But the Bible tells us as we reach the end of the age, it's going to shift. Israel will be welcomed back. They'll be reconciled to God. And we're going to see a shift as the Gentiles harden their hearts and turn away from God. Secondly, we're seeing that Paul continues his ministry there. We're told three things about Paul. Number one, these last few verses sum it up well. He welcomed all who came to him. Paul never turned anyone away. Paul set the paradigm that the gospel is for all mankind. Well, I mean, it was really set by Christ himself. I mean, Christ taught in his, his earthly ministry that, that salvation was for all, but it, it was really Paul who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth and it would be right there in Rome, in the center of the Gentile Empire. He welcomed all to the church. He welcomed all to the house of God. In Galatians 3.20, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for we're all one in Christ. This was Paul's worldview, and it should be our worldview. Everyone is welcome in those doors. Every human being, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your background, how sinful you are, everybody's welcome in the house of God. Amen? We all have some pretty messed up backgrounds, I'm sure, but guess what? God saved us, he redeemed us, he washed us and cleansed us. We are children of God. Amen? Secondly, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus. He didn't sit there to cozy up and get in good politically with the people in Rome or to be a tourist. He had one purpose and was determined, and that was to preach Jesus and the kingdom of God. I think it's significant. The kingdom of God is only mentioned three times in the book of Acts. And in this particular context, when you think of it, he's in Rome, the empire, the kingdom of kingdoms, and he's preaching the kingdom of God within the kingdom of Rome. In other words, there's another king, not Caesar, and his name is Jesus and he is the king of kings and lord and lord and ruler of all. And finally, he preached with all boldness and without hindrance. You know, if you look at some of these verses in his prison letters, you could see exactly, exactly what Paul was doing. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. Paul, writing from prison in Rome, uh, writing regarding 
uh, um, his, his time there, says, listen, I'm here and the imperial guard is hearing the gospel. He has the imperial guard watching over him and he's preaching the gospel to them. That even among the ranks of the, the Roman guards, the praetorian guards, the highest ranking officials in the Roman army, they are hearing and believing the gospel. And that is serving a purpose to further embolden other believers. Paul is bold and it's emboldening other believers. Look at the purpose that God is bringing about through all these trials and difficulties. Look what's happening. Paul's attitude was positive through this whole thing. He knew what he was there for and he had a positive outlook. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, he says, again, a prison letter, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. At the same time, pray for me, pray for us, that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. He's saying, keep praying for me, that I may keep preaching this gospel I'm in prison, but I still have an audience and I still have people I could witness to. I still have an outreach. And he would. The book ends with almost, well, what's next? What happened next? What's the conclusion? Did Paul die? Did he go on to his fourth missionary journey? Church history holds a lot of that, but, but the book ends suddenly for a reason. The book ends suddenly for a reason, because the book is still being written. The book of Acts tells us really what it is, the acts of the Holy Spirit. You see, the book is finished, but the mission Jesus assigned to the church is not. That means Christians, wherever you are, first century or the 21st century, we're part of the story. We're part of the story. We get to participate in the next chapter of Acts. We get to join the drama of spreading the good news to all people. And may God, while God replaces the messengers over time, the message never changes. And it will remain unchanging until the king returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to the end of this journey. Father, may we be as bold and as zealous and as confident as Paul in your sovereign work. And I pray that we would see our lives for what they are, O Lord, servants in your kingdom. Help us to get through the storms of life. Help us to navigate, keeping our focus on you, not on this world. It's so easy to be distracted, Lord. It's so easy to be distracted. Help us to stay focused, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Let's stand and we'll sing together.